2: Welcome to this week's Sat Talk Radio. I'm the Joe world
0: for sweaters that shrink.
2: The world for sweaters that shrink. And Joe Quinn. With me is Neil Bradley, as usual. Also Jason. Hi, everyone. As usual, say hello, Jason. Hello, Jason. Good job. And Pierre. Hello. This week, we are going to take a look at the recent hits taken by gold and Bitcoin. Bitcoin is a so-called virtual currency and has been touted as a solution to people's concerns with online privacy and protection from overbearing and centralized fiscal authorities. Bitcoin has steadily risen in popularity and value since its launch in 2008, until, that is, a couple of weeks ago, when its dollar value suddenly plummeted. What happened to make people suddenly lose interest? Or more sinisterly, was the digital currency attacked by financial speculators? What makes prices rise and fall anyway? Speculation, hype, and pump and dump schemes certainly play a role in making or breaking products on the markets or manipulating the value of a states' currencies. But are there forces at work here that extend beyond human influence? And what about paper money? Do we still use it? Will it soon become a thing of the past? Is a cashless society where all purchases are made with digital transactions really on the cards? Everyone knows that money doesn't grow on trees. But where then does money come from?
0: Well, it's made from paper, so it kind of technically doesn't – no, it's not made from paper anymore. It's kind of like a linen, isn't it, or something?
2: I don't know, but why is there never enough of it for most of us and far too much of it for the 1%? <laughs> in the era of record wealth disparity between rich and poor, uh, what are we going to do about it? Is it? Are we unique in
0: history, or do we have historical precedents to compare it with?
2: I'm going to throw all of those questions open to our panel of experts.
0: Well, first we should we should backtrack one second.
3: Oh, no, you go ahead. You, you go ahead. Yeah. Well, we, we should clarify that we're not experts. We're not. But, you speak for yourself, there, Neil. Uh, Joseph Quinn. Um, uh, w- I mean, you know, we've got some pretty well-educated opinions, I think, amongst us um, between us. Um, I reckon a lot of our callers too are people who are been paying attention, who understand to some degree. Or where do we how things are rigged,
4: and what either you
3: see it, for calling in either you see it or not.
4: As a consumer, as an employee, as a retired person, you can see the effects. You can see what's going on. You can see the erosion year after year, month after month, of your purchase power. You can see the rising poverty. You can see the rich getting richer. You can see the poor getting poorer even if you don't grok all the subtle mechanism behind the
3: curtain. Yeah, everyone's got their opinion on it. So we're going to throw our opinions out there, and you're more than welcome to four years into the hot, and, and we'll yeah. see what we come up with.
0: Yeah, we hope people will, will call in and, and chime in with their stuff. What's the what's the number for the call-in, Joe?
2: The number is 001, if you're outside the U.S., then 718-508-9499. Excellent.
0: So I wanted I wanted to backtrack what Joe said, um, I, because a lot of people are presenting Bitcoin as a, a privacy kind of thing. They, they they do a privacy angle, and that's that's really not true. Uh, Bitcoin wasn't designed with privacy in
3: mind at all. Um, well, how about we backtrack even further? I mean, to be honest, until it came up in the news recently, I'd heard mention of it here and there, but I was like, man, Bitcoin, what's that? So you you've got some ideas yet? What is Bitcoin?
0: Okay, well. A Bitcoin is – I'll use the description line – is a decentralized peer-to-peer currency. And what that basically means is that um, everyone who participates in Bitcoin, all of the spenders and and users and stuff like that, all the people part of the network are the central authority basically. There is no central bank that issues Bitcoins. Bitcoins are generated by – Solving mathematical equations to find correct sequences of hashes and thus creating coins. There's a limited number of coins that can ever be created, 21 million or so. And as you go along within history, the coins become more and more difficult to generate. And what this basically means is that Bitcoins are not counterfeitable. You cannot print more. You cannot count. And and it's mathematically backed up, Um, which in a certain sense is kind of what makes Bitcoin very attractive because – Uh, A lot of banks are saying, oh, Bitcoin has no regulation, and I say, well, that's not really true. Bitcoin has the the sternest regulator of all, mathematical, you know, the god of mathematics tells you exactly what can and cannot happen. And
3: no amount of – Just to clarify, you mentioned print anymore, but this is a virtual currency. There is no actual physical Bitcoin or paper, right?
0: Mm, That's kind of of an idea. that comes into it. That's a philosophical question about whether or not something inside of a computer has an existence, and it does, really. It, it, people need to remember that computers do have physical existences. And
3: uh, Sure, the computers do, but the currency as such is not actually – that's why it's called a virtual currency, right? It does exist. It does exist because
0: it's like the number 13 exists, right? You right. would just say that the number 13 okay. exists. It doesn't physically exist. You can't hold 13 in your hand. I got you. In okay. the same sense that a Bitcoin exists because it's just a mathematical reality that that Bitcoin exists inside of a space of 0 to 21 million possible numbers that okay. could be representing a Bitcoin. So it does exist. It has it has a very fixed existence. It can't be faked. It can only be found based on the history of the network and what's
3: going on, and then there you go. It's, gotcha. So the concept is sound.
0: The, the concept is excruciatingly sound. It's backed up by hardcore mathematical Mathematical truth, essentially, I
3: mean there's, okay, there's uh, no way to fake it how how was it was there one particular group of people, one guy well how did it start and um, when did it start uh, it started
0: in two thousand eight two thousand nine
3: by a, okay about five years now by some by a white
0: paper published on a a crypto list, which are people who are interested in mathematical cryptography and stuff like that, okay, which is like you know creating hashes and ways to secure information and things like that. Uh, wrote a paper and published uh, uh, basically a proof-of-concept source code for a program. Very well-designed. was suspiciously well-designed, actually. Have you had a look at it? Yeah, I've had a look at the source code. I've had a look at the the paper by a uh, man named Satoshi Nakamoto, who, mm-hmm. who doesn't write or speak like a Japanese person at all and has a German email address. So he's kind of like a Falconelli character where he just sort of popped up, created this thing. It was already kind of really created and done, you know, as a whole masterpiece almost with very little changes have been made. There's been a lot of fixes and some new features into the the client and stuff like that. But for the most part, the system hasn't really fundamentally changed since he designed it, quote unquote. Um, And so there's a lot of questions about it, who he was, whether he was a group of people and, and things
3: like that. Okay. Now it's taken off to the extent that two weeks ago the news was that the bubble had burst on it. Right. So what's what's meant there? The bubble, the value of Bitcoin that has been generated in these five years suddenly plunged. What what happened there?
0: The thing is, is Bitcoin was designed to be kind of like an open source community currency, in the same sense of like I have a hammer, um, you have some eggs. You need somebody to build. You need to borrow my hammer to you know build something, and I need an egg to cook. So I said, give me an egg. I'll let you borrow my hammer. Type of thing. So it's a physical exchange, even though it's a virtual currency.
3: It's a means for exchanging yeah, services a, like any other like form of currency.
0: any other form of currency. But then some smart person, <laughs> some idiot, decided that they would have like currency exchanges and people could do speculation um, based on bitcoins and buy and then sell them in the same way that people buy and sell currencies or buy and sell any kind of quote-unquote commodity, um, even like gold or whatever it is. And so they created some exchanges, internet exchanges that people could go on, they pay their money and they get some bitcoins and they trade them back and forth. And um, through some mechanism, the price started to go up because, of course, it got very popular. So people started wanting them. Of course, when people want them, they'll pay any price for them. So they would pay any price for them. But at a certain point after they had got their bitcoins, they realized that they couldn't do anything with it. And so they're like, shit, I want my money back. And so then they started selling them, and they were willing to sell them at any price. So then, of course, you know, the value went up, and then the value went down, and that's what happens with currencies all the time. There's nothing there's nothing fantastically new about it. It doesn't change anything intrinsic about the system or the value. I mean, it's just what people who really aren't even really a part of the community of Bitcoin were willing to pay. They were willing to pay 260 bucks because they were idiots. And then when they were in there, they got scared, and they were willing to accept anything, including like, you know, 16 20 bucks, 20 or 50 bucks, or whatever it was that it fell to at the time, I don't remember, um, because they were idiots, you know. I mean, that's basically what happened. It wasn't a big bubble, and, 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 and I, I get the feeling from reading the various news and reading the various posts from the community of Bitcoin users that they were just like, what, huh, huh? You know, it's like it went up, and they were like, oh, cool, and then it went down, and they were like, eh, whatever.
3: I'm going to go continue doing what I'm doing. Can you explain to technophobes like myself? Yeah. I- I'm not a tech. I'm not really. I don't hate technology, but I'm a techno. Let's say a technophyte. Yeah. Can you explain to me what would be attractive about getting involved and or purchasing? What what was it that brought people into, into this little market, so to speak?
0: Um, people who are sort of of a libertarian bent and uh, very against uh, central banks and the currency manipulation the pre- Aspects of the system are, are of two varieties. One, of course, you can't print more, so it's a fixed supply. Therefore, it's. I
3: think we're, we're back. Okay.
0: And So we're back online, there, Joe. Yes, we're back online. Carry on. Excellent. Okay, so yeah, so, yeah Neil and I were, were just talking about um, again the, the privacy thing. Is that's kind of not really even promoted by uh, the Bitcoin, the paper by Nakamoto doesn't even talk about really privacy concerns. And Bitcoin wasn't designed to be a private currency. They call it a cryptocurrency, and people automatically think cryptography—that must mean hidden. But uh, Bitcoin works off something called the public ledger, which is basically the entire network maintains a ledger of every single transaction that has ever taken place for any amount of Bitcoin or fractions of Bitcoin since the beginning. And that's publicly accessible and publicly look You can look at it. Um, what makes it sort of kind of like a little bit private is this obscurity of your identity because all of the transactions are recorded as – Exchanges between two addresses, which are like really long strings of of hex codes or you know digits or whatever it is, so it 's really big identifiers, so your name isn 't in there, but that identifier can be traced back to you. The whole idea that it 's some way to like prevent the government from knowing that you 've been doing some stuff is not really entirely accurate there There obviously are methods to do that, but those methods are the same traditional methods that have always been in place for you know internet type of security you know go to a Wi-Fi hotspot, use TrueCrypt on your computer type of stuff. I mean, have like 50 different public and private keys that you're using and maintain five different identities to work on, you know. So it's a lot of work, you know, to do that. But And and Bitcoin is not intrinsically private. And in the paper, Nakamoto basically doesn't even cover the privacy aspect. He's just more interested in the, the mathematical integrity of the system as a whole and the inability of a central authority or even a small group of attackers to compromise the system. And that's basically what Bitcoin is built to prevent. So it's not something that, you know, it's not something that like Goldman Sachs can just buy like five computers and then screw with the network. It doesn't work quite that way. And even if they did, they wouldn't be able to do much damage because of the way everything is structured. So most of it is about how do you generate a currency system that doesn't rely on trust, no central trust. There's no Visa, there's no MasterCard, there's no central bank, there's no any of that stuff who keep track of transactions, there's no bank that says, yes, so-and-so has enough money to write this check or has enough money on their credit card. There's no need for that because the system ensures that if you spend a coin, you are the owner of the coin and it's mathematically provable that you were at that point in time and then when you exchange the coin and then it's fixed forever and no one can reverse it
3: and it cannot be undone. Right. And you can't steal them out of the network. Well, The first thing that strikes me is that something like that would surely be um, on, let's say, the powers that be radar because here you've got a system where transactions take place what, right. without being taxed.
0: Yeah, I mean there's, I think I, – I don't know if this number is true. One time I read it was several hundred million, but then another time I said that it was – someone was saying that there were $1 billion worth of transactions – being done uh, a year or something like that with Bitcoin, I don't know the exact number. So it's a lot. Yeah, you'd think that it'd be on their radar. And and I have, I have a couple different opinions on that particular thing, whether or not it's that um, the government created itself and wants something like Bitcoin because I think in a certain sense you could say that a certain cabal within the governments of the world – doesn't really like the banking system to be quite honest it is it is a I mean Bitcoin is a bank killer 100 percent it's a bank and credit card killer it, if it's allowed to persist it will kill banks because it's just a better system um, it's, it's very very sound and it balances itself out and re- doesn't require them and it's cheap you know anybody can exchange coins you know so they you don't need a central bank at all and it's so well designed by someone who is obviously kind of an academic individual um, probably someone who was, you know, involved in, you know, military research or something like that. I think. So it sounds like it's something that kind of comes from the government, um, or a cabal within the government that wants to uh, either experiment or see what's going on because it creates a kind of a perfect system for a government if you think about it, and it's not really yeah. perfect for people. It's a completely public and trackable system. You know, it's not hidden. It's not easy to conceal yourself on on the Bitcoin system.
3: Although it claims. How do I put it? Pure anonymity.
0: Well, it doesn't claim that. I mean, no. People who use it claim that. You know? People
3: have assumed it maybe.
0: People have assumed it because uh, you know you have these public-private key cryptography and all this different stuff, but that's not that doesn't ensure anonymity because the minute you let's say, for instance, the minute you buy something with Bitcoin, you have to have it delivered somewhere.
3: Ah, and that. Of course, the item itself we track.:
0: The item itself lands in a physical location, which is then tied to you, which means that the address for that transaction is tied to you, which means, therefore, they can go through the entire history of all transactions and see where that Bitcoin moved from who to where to what? Was it yours, where did you get it? Who did you get it from? And so it is still easy to collect intelligence on people, and there are ways around that naturally. You know, you can create a new wallet address for every transaction and use different keys and move to different locations and never have anything delivered to a location actually tied to you. You know, I mean, but
3: that's a whole lot of work. You have no idea. It's almost impossible to do. So so people are looking for alternative ways to create to, and I guess Internet privacy comes into this a lot.
0: Internet privacy comes into it a lot, but you have to remember that there's no such thing as Internet privacy. There's no real internet privacy. Everything is sort of yeah. It's kind of
3: the holy grail for, let's say, a, a hacktivist community out there. It's like, you know, can we stay under the radar? No. Can anyone? Can't.
0: I mean, there's, there's a, I mean, you. There's like there's two branches of that particular argument. The one is is that the, you can't because the government is so all powerful that they have all these satellites and all this technology, which is of course total BS because they're not. What has happened over the last few years, which lets you know this, is that the government has kind of empowered local ISPs to basically spy on people and given them not only just carte blanche to do it, but the tools, technology, just whatever, you know, spy on your own consumers so that actually it's a giant sort of like Nazi-esque network of ISPs reporting on their own clients type of thing. You know, so you're in a physical location. You have a computer. The computer was bought with your credit card. It has a serial number. Um, That transaction is recorded at the place that you bought it and just intrinsically of just record keeping, you know, and then you did something with it and the MAC address. I mean, seriously, there's no anonymity. You can't do anything without leaving, you know, digital fingerprints, quote unquote, on anything. Um, Okay. I mean, we talked about this today. There's so much that can be said on this topic.
3: (laughs) I mean, it's just. Well, I thought it was interesting that. um, Okay, so this this Bitcoin is set up. Right. Uh, Because people are looking for alternative ways to get around uh, heavy burdens of constant taxation, big brother eye in the sky, just to have some semblance of privacy. And it struck me that the the value, the value that people place on something like this, a, a virtual currency, is exactly that, privacy.
0: Right, privacy.
3: But from what you're saying, this isn't really attainable.
0: Not – no, no. It doesn't really exist in there. I mean it, it can. You can do a lot of work for it and, and you can – it it, it pre- presents a little bit of a problem for the government in the fact that they're not positioned right now to go into Bitcoin and find out who's spending what and tax them all, right? But But they will, you know, and because of the nature of Bitcoin, they'll be able to do it retroactively because everything's public and it's a public ledger and they'll just, you know, find some way. I mean uh-huh. – with a little bit of anonymity, you know, effort, and lots and lots of encryption and switching addresses, you can make it very hard to next to impossible for them to find out everything that you did on the network, but eventually it will get to that point. Its value is in the ability to, to have a way to exchange and keep assets that are not seizable, most importantly, by an arbitrary third party like PayPal. Now, everybody hates PayPal because PayPal will arbitrarily seize your money, freeze your account for indefinite periods of time, uh, and you have no real legal, legal recourse against them. You haven't necessarily committed a crime. They just decided to do it, and all of a sudden you need that money, and they don't want to give it up. And sometimes I think they do it for fun every once in a while. Um, so that's the kind of Bitcoin protects you against that. It doesn't protect you against government seizures because the government always has the ability to come in your house, take your computer, and then they have access to your wallet. So you know, I mean, it's, Bitcoin is not really different from cash in a certain sense. You know, there's still a wallet, and somebody can take it. The government can take it in the same way they can take the wallet out of your pocket, in the same way they can seize your assets physically. So Bitcoin doesn't really solve the government problem at all. It does solve the third party problem. Yeah, the one difference I
4: can see between cash and Bitcoin is that unlike Bitcoin, cash is non trackable or not tracked. Yeah. And uh you can see over the, to the last decades Efforts, recurring efforts towards a cashless society, because cash, being not trackable, cannot be taxed, and you cannot know what the citizen is consuming, buying, and saving. So it means less control and less taxation exerted by the powers to be
3: on citizens.
0: And and then we go to the second prong that we got sidetracked to, you know.
3: Yeah, and in the same week that Bitcoin takes this plunge in its its dollar value, in its nominal market value. Gold took a big hit. Now, people are more familiar with the idea that gold is uh, an an alternative currency. But of course,
0: it's the original
3: currency. currency. Almost. Pierre, you want (laughs) to... (laughs) Seashells. Exactly. Seashells.
4: Uh, Well, that's a... There's a lot to say, but maybe... We should start with the basics and uh, talk about what the currency is. And uh, but the fundamentals of the currency is this notion of value. Okay? And this notion of value is, reflected, is a reflection of several parameters. For a country, nation, its currency, national currency, will be a reflection of the intrinsic value of the country. If the country discovers new resources, or to be more cynical, invades a new country with a lot of oil or make a major discovery, technology that improves competitiveness, the value of the national economy increases, and therefore the value of the currency increases. For a long time, this intrinsic value was reflected by the treasure of the country. The treasure was counted in gold, silver and copper, the, the three noble metals at the time. If you had a lot of wealth, you had a lot of gold, you had a mint, Kings, that means dukes, princes, and you could uh, issue coins, gold coins. Now, today, and we're going to talk about the the historical step that led to the current situation, we are into the era of fiducial money, of fiat money. Fiducial based on uh, fide, the Latin word that means confidence, trust, and credit that is based on a Latin word as well, credare, believe. Mm-hmm. And basically today, when you hold a $1 knot in your hand, or $10 knot in your hand, the value, this $10 value, is purely subjective, arbitrary, and based on belief. It has no intrinsic value at all, part, a, part from the value of the paper. Part of the, apart from the value of the paper, yeah, which is less than $10. Well, how much is a sheet of toilet paper worth? Mm-hmm. and uh, unlike gold gold has an intrinsic value because the supply is limited because it has industrial use, used by a civilization to make uh, electronic components, jewelry, etc. Et so when you melt a coin its price weight wise is almost the same one as the coin minted today we live in an era of illusory money. Money as debt, we're gonna, we're gonna develop that thoroughly uh, yeah. uh, later. Um, and the illusion that keeps the confidence, the trust of citizens in their currency is thoroughly maintained through different manipulations, manipulations, um, including the rigging of the price of gold that is not what speculators, what the big financial institutions are doing, is not hiding the rise, the rise in gold price. They are hiding the constant drop, the constant decrease in currency value. Right. Today, we can say objectively, most countries are in a bankrupt state. If it was a normal company, evaluated by an objective uh, consulting group, auditing group, mm-hmm. it will be considered as bankrupt. The debt are much, much, much higher than the assets, than the income, than the profit, than whatever way we value the country. However, the currencies are still considered as having a value higher than zero,
2: mm-hmm. which is actually not the case. Yeah. <clears throat> The problem with, uh, even though gold is, you know, you go back to the time when gold was the uh, commodity, uh, it was traded gold or silver, that's still, I mean, everybody think, thinks that gold is, oh, I want some gold or at least some silver, um, but they're still just minerals like any other technically and the idea that they're rare. I mean, the only, the only value that they essentially have is the idea that they're rare, but then even if they're rare, what, I mean, gold doesn't have very practical use. You know, you think that iron would be more, a much better commodity because it has more practical use. I mean, what can you do with gold? It's a soft metal. It's pretty. So the value of, uh, the value of gold is backed by prettiness? It o-
4: not, <laughs> not, not only it's a very nice metal, I think, Yeah, it is, but, but yeah. Uh, <clears throat> it has other, other advantages. If we take uh, back, if we go back to uh, Jason's example, I have a hammer. You have a hag, you want to sell your hag, I want to sell my hammer, but you don't want a hammer. I, I don't want a hag either. An yeah. egg,
2: you mean? Yeah. Yeah.
4: yeah. Okay. So... It's a French egg. Okay. So the notion of currency is the tool that will allow to fluidify transactions. Yeah, but that could be anything then. Why would okay, it be gold? we're going there. Gold has several advantages. It's it's malleable. malleable. it's malleable, it's ductile the uh, ductile metals so easy to cut it in small pieces, big pieces. Second, unlike most metals, it doesn't alter with time. It doesn't
2: rust. Mm. It doesn't corrode. Okay, so, so there are a few aspects to gold that would make it unnatural. And there's another one. Uh, the other one is that
4: it's rare, but the rarity of a good doesn't make its value. It's more the balance between... The supply and the demand, if the supply is scarce, if it's rare, and if addition, the demand is quite high, it can be because of lead, because of industrial application, because of any factor. The more the demand is higher than supply, the higher the value of the good. And for gold, the supply is really limited. Over centuries, we'll be mining and mining, and we don't extract much. Yeah. And recurrently, every decade, every year, the demand is higher than the supply. Okay. So today, and for centuries, millennium, gold value has been high. And actually, it's been quite stable. In the Roman Empire, one ounce of gold allows you to buy all outfit clothes. Today, with one ounce of gold, about $500, 1200 euros, you buy a whole outfit that's relatively stable. There are manipulations, ups and downs, but overall, it's relatively stable, and this high value... It gives another advantage to gold is, if you want to move your estate, if you want to carry big transactions, you will, if, you, if you want to move your castle, you want to move country, you will want dismantle your, your castle and carry each stone from one country to another one. Mm-hmm. But you can sell it with gold, that will, a castle might be, I mean, historically, it's so around 10 kg of gold over centuries and you can carry 10 kg of gold in a small volume it's practicality for transaction it's a, it has
2: a lot of logistical
4: advantage on the road it won't rust it's a small volume for very high value
2: okay I still don't really understand why you know gold was chosen I don't, don't think that really explains why gold was, apart from malleability and the practicality of it it could be any other really you know I mean there's nothing intrinsically objectively speaking there's nothing intrinsically valuable about gold apart from the uh it's not only
4: gold. When you look at it, silver is the same yeah. historically, yeah. but silver being less scarce, yeah. less rare, as a lower value, copper, has an intrinsic value, is going. Yeah, but the, the, price the, has been going but the,
2: the scarcity came afterwards as a, was a result of the fact that gold was chosen originally for probably for its prettiness and its malleability, and then they said, okay, well it's rare, therefore, for the reasons you mentioned, that that adds benefits for uh, it being traded. Do you know what I mean? But the original idea it seems to be was that it was nice and malleable.
4: Yeah,
2: it could be other noble metals. It could be yeah. platinum. Exactly, yeah. Flat- let, me, let me just pause the- you there because we have a call.
1: We'll get back to that.
2: Hi, caller. What's your name? Where are you calling from?
1: My name is Ed. I'm from Michigan.
2: Hey, Ed. Welcome. Hello. Hello. What, what, what you got to, to to say to us?
1: Um, I've been doing a, a lot of research into Bitcoin when I first read about it. And the, the concern that I have is originally when Bitcoin was made the the way the the blocks were verified, uh the the average person could just use their CPU power and you know hopefully get one and in the in the first phase of it, for every block you verified you got fifty bitcoins. Well yeah. they so many have been verified at this point that now yeah. they've gone on to the a second phase where you only earn half as much you earn 25 <coughs> well over time they figured out that video card GPUs could be used mm-hmm. to verify the blocks at 10 times the processing power of a normal CPU so people started building just these incredible rigs there's if you if anyone wants to see one just uh, Google Bitcoin rig, rigs, and you'll actually see pictures of an entire room filled with motherboards with basically the the fastest video cards that are were currently out at the time, yep. and it, these people were, you know, generating processing power that even then the the average person could not do. So it. To me, I almost wonder if the the Bitcoin generation and people getting the solving the blocks and getting fifty and now it's down to twenty five and it, it'll go down again eventually. Yeah. If yeah. they are going to end up having somewhat of a monopoly, because if you think about, you Absolutely. know, if the one percent realize that this type of currency is a threat, they could put somebody up to. Researching like the the new technology that's now they're they're, they're called ASICs. It's appl- application specific yeah. integrated circuits,
5: right. and
1: the processing power of these is just absolutely incredible. It's it, there's there's no words to really describe how how much processing power these have compared to even the old video card rigs that people were using before.
0: Well, the interesting so, thing with ASICs, though, is that it's um. It's not so much processing power; it's that they just are faster at it. They actually well, they, allow for less power.
1: Right. They allow for less power. I know a lot of the rooms before the, you know, the the power use was actually people were starting to figure it out, and yeah, they might have solved a block, but when they calculated what their electricity cost was going to be and the cooling the room so all the units didn't overheat, it, it was actually exceeding what they were getting yeah, in Bitcoin, exactly. at least with the current value of what the Bitcoin was, until it went up into the 200s, whatever mm-hmm. it was, several weeks ago, and then it crashed.
5: Yeah. Yeah.
1: But uh, I, I am still concerned with the, the ASICs being out there now, that right. because they're in such limited production, you know, there's a handful right. of people that are basically... Nobody can compete with them now, you know. And as more as these come out, we're just, you know, how few of people are going to have the majority of the bitcoins on the market. I mean, it's
0: well, that's that's one of the problems. I mean, there's actually even now a new thing, which is uh, after ASICs, they came up with. uh, It might have been before ASICs, but they have mining pools, basically, where a whole bunch of people get together and they use RPC to connect their computers to to do the equivalent. Um, Wow. I had not heard of that yet. Yeah, so there's mining pools as well. But the thing is, yeah, you're absolutely correct. I think that that's fundamentally one of the flaws of the Bitcoin system um, because basically you have everyone on the Bitcoin network, and they're more or less consumers of the public ledger, and then you have what are called miners, and miners work kind of in the same way that Visa works. They process the transactions. They basically – you say, I want to make this transaction. They say, okay. They put it inside of a – in a space and they calculate the blocks, the hashes afterward up until like say for instance six. And then as they do that, every once in a while they get to a, a new block and then that releases you know 50 or now 25 new coins, right? Right. And those guys are actually doing the bulk of the work of the network and are maintaining the integrity of the network. And as long as they're honest, then the network is good. But the minute that they're they're no longer honest, then it's bad. And that's kind of like a necessary, necessary flaw. But the thing that I didn't like about Bitcoin or don't like is that it's not everybody lending a small amount of their process of power. Everyone who participates in the network has an equal chance of releasing a block. Everyone is processing a little bit of transactions when they participate. Instead, you have to have people who buy dedicated hardware. To do that. Right. And in the very was,
1: beginning, it was, it was shared in that way because yeah. the, the other technology didn't exist. They hadn't figured out the GPU trick to increase it by 10 times right. and then the ASICs and now the pools that you're talking about. I mean, what comes to mind now with the pools that you mentioned that is what if somebody buys, say there's 300 new ASICs released in a month and a half from now. What if some big company or somebody buys half of those? Right and, and that's the pool, is they have half of the ASICs. The, the processing power of that pool alone is going to mm-hmm. have enormous leverage over basically right. how many Bitcoins they get.
4: Right. And you're describing, actually, the way most markets, commodities, currencies, share markets are being rigged and manipulated, yeah. how speculative yeah. bubbles are created and bursted. You have a few major players. Who concentrate fifty, sixty, seventy percent
3: of the assets in their pocket, and they can move the market the way they want when they want. From, from, yeah. the, way Ad, from the way Ad is describing it, it sounds like the monopolization of yeah. this new currency is already taking place. Well, yeah, I mean, when <laughs> in it, record time. But
0: okay, so it, it doesn't really. It, it is a problem. Like it's a definitely a problem that people can. They could theoretically hoard them, but there'd be no real point. They can be the ones to discover the Bitcoins, which is great for them in the early points, but it doesn't – in the long term of the network, isn't really a problem unless they never release those Bitcoins. If they never release the Bitcoins and there's only 10 million, then it's a bit of a problem. But once the coins have been discovered, they've been discovered, and the network continues on afterwards. So, I mean, it's not like a horrible, oh, my God, it's over, flaw, but it is one of those ones where, yeah, a big company or somebody who's really wealthy, like Goldman Sachs, could decide – to actually commission ASICs because an ASIC is just an application-specific integrated circuit. It's basically microchip where your code for solving the algorithm, your program is just written onto the chip and there's no CPU or processor. It is the whole thing right there in one little chip type of thing. They could just commission some techies to make that for them. They could just fill a room with it and then they could – take over the processing of the network, and then manipulate it. So yeah, that is a weakness. That has always been a weakness. But the great thing about Bitcoin in that particular respect is that the kind of manipulation they can do is still limited to things like they could double-spend coins or they could mm-hmm. switch around the order of transactions at any point, but they couldn't really do that much with it. They'd, they'd always be in a constant battle to be manipulating the system and constantly have to run to be constant perks. So... In a certain sense it's it's bad because yeah, like ads saying, you can't compete, like the average user can't compete anymore. And that's kind of not really fair, you know.
1: Yeah, that's the way I felt about it. It's there's something that I find unattractive about it. It almost to me falls into the same class as the the high speed trading that goes on in the markets now. I mean yeah. you know, there's there's people that can afford uh that rigs and equipment and hardware that have processing power that that none of us could possibly afford. And these people, in the end, somehow always figure out a way through technology to make everything go their way. What's what's worse
0: about that? Yeah, you were saying?
1: Go ahead. Go ahead.
0: I was going to say that what's worse about that is that it's not actually these guys are not really techies. It's just they have so much money right now. That they pay a couple of nerds to get together and find them a solution, and then they just cook up a button for them to press and they manipulate stuff with buttons. You know, it's, it's all of these massive trading platforms that are, you know, hardcore design that have like special algorithms that wait for things to be certain prices and then sell immediately faster than any person could, could ever do it, and they make their money that way. I mean, it's, it's exactly. kind of unfair still.
1: Exactly.
0: It's unfair to that- the little person.
1: Yeah, that's that's one of the things that I thought about when I I read about the the first gentleman that actually did release ASICs for sale for Bitcoin generation. You know, it it dawned on me who could have possibly came to this guy and paid him to develop it. He obviously had the knowledge to to create the right. create the ASIC to do it. Right. You know, and he's he's making good money off of it. But what if somebody gave him a big corporation, somebody who mm-hmm. saw the the value in this to get it to their advantage, they could have been the ones that basically gave him his lab and all of the equipment. Because if you look at the picture of his lab, that is some extremely sophisticated equipment that is being mm-hmm. used to create these things.
0: Yeah, I think one of the first rigs, though, to go out for those went to the one of, uh, one of the core developers. I can't remember what his name is. Though. It did. It yeah, did. it went to the – So that was a good thing because if that guy's honest, then maybe it's okay. But like I think my my friend Mikey is always saying, you know, in in a gold rush, the people who make money are the tool makers. The guy who makes the pickaxe is the one who really makes out during a gold rush, and that's kind of what's going on here. You know, everybody's, you know, I mean, there was a guy who paid twenty thousand six hundred dollars for one of these Asic rigs, not even for it actually, just the promise that the guy will make it for him. Yeah, that was the
1: auction on eBay. I had read about that.
0: Yeah, paid twenty grand for one of these ASICs and you know, I mean, okay, I understand it. He's yeah, that's it's speculation. I don't think that I think that the 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 Bitcoin community should definitely not be down with speculation. Speculation is, is a killer in markets, you know. Speculation just shouldn't be allowed. Yes. You know, that's what that's what caused the bubble, just rampant, greedy speculation. Uh, of people who had nothing, they just said, oh, it's a, it's a hot commodity, I'll go and trade it. Let me put some money on it. And then, of course, they lost their shirts and they deserved it for being stupid. But,
3: And herein lies the rub. Right. Bitcoin is part of a world where the financial economic system is such that speculation is given free reign right. to run rampant.
0: Which is why I see Bitcoin, like I was saying before, as like... It seems like the government kind of is behind it, or some cabal in the government is behind it, because it's really like it's perfect for them. It's not completely private; it is a public ledger, it's traceable, it is, you know, taxable, and will be when they if, if they were to ever get set up for it. Um, it's just a perfect for a cashless society, and yeah. it, it, what better than to get the people themselves to demand it? We want we want the government to start using Bitcoin, and they'll be like, okay, no problem.
1: You know, yeah,
3: that
0: and everybody I mean, not
1: uh, and everybody not knowing any better would jump on board with that, not realizing where the source of it came.
0: Yeah, I mean because it was it's too well done, you know. It's so well done it it could a lot of people have mentioned that it probably couldn't have been written by just one single person, or at least it would be very suspicious to have been created by one person. Just the source code kind of looked in the in the sense like maybe there had been some more more than one person behind it that it had been kind of a group of people. Um, probably, with academic backgrounds, so, exactly. I mean, this really so- this really sounds like the product of a think tank uh, you know the, a that's, think tank
1: that 's what i 'm thinking as well when you When you read about the history of bitcoin and its origin, they always refer to this you know cryptic individual who nobody knows his real name, and you know supposedly some people have met with him and seen him well i haven 't how many of the other people that are using Bitcoin have probably I mean, none of it's, them?
0: It's the same. It's the same Fucinelli type of character, you know. Where yeah, Ken is always saying, "Yeah, I met him in Spain. I swear." And we're like, "Yeah, we're
3: supposed to believe you because you're selling books." Kaiser right. are Is he real?
1: <laughs>
3: <laughs> All right. Uh, thanks for <laughs> your call. For Great your talking to you. Thank
1: too. you very much. Take it easy. Bye.
2: Yeah. I think the fundamental problem here is that it's the world we live in, mm. and the type, the, of the type of people in the world. You could try and impose a, a really positive kind of, um, you know, kind of game changer, potential game changer situation that would improve a lot of humanity and get rid of banking, for example. Uh, but does that, that
0: really improve a lot?
2: Yeah, it does not really improve a lot? And is it even possible? Are people deprogrammed enough, or are they too mm. programmed? into the existing system to even, you know, they're not going to accept anything alternative or well, that isn't part of official dumb type thing. They're going to be suspicious of it right. because it's not official. Authorities don't back it. You need half the world to be a bunch of renegades, you know what I mean? And they're not. They're a bunch of sheep.
0: Well, Canada has already started a, a digital mint, basically. Canada has, based on kind of like a Bitcoin technology, has started issuing digital currency of some kind. I don't have any specifics on that, unfortunately. Um, but you see that the banking system is having a very adverse reaction. They've started closing the accounts of people trading with Bitcoin. Um, they've done a couple of famous accounts in Canada, the the, the Bank of Canada or, some, I don't know, Royal Bank, of whatever. They've started canceling people's accounts even though they're very large, like you know, one guy, $13 million worth of transactions. And uh, they, they closed his account and said, you know, we're not interested in your business anymore. We have the right to close your account just because they, they are afraid. The banking system is afraid, and I think that the government, the certain parts of the government recognize what the banking system is doing and that they're out of control, and, and, and they want they want their hands in that pie. You know, They want to get more direct into people's homes, and Bitcoin is a way that they do that. I mean, if they were to take over Bitcoin or say, all right, Bitcoin is cool, or whatever they build off of Bitcoin, I don't think Bitcoin will succeed. I think that the next thing after Bitcoin will be this sort of cashless society, digital currency, and that it will be you know issued by the government or a government yeah. of
2: some kind right? you could see how it could lead right. into the whole the you know the purported illuminati's plan for a one world government via right. cashless society uh-huh. you could see how bitcoin uh-huh. would be a lead into that Do right. you
3: know what i mean they set that up or tweak it a little bit and it's say, a
0: proving <coughs> ground
3: yeah potential trojan horse so bitcoin yeah. beware yeah caveat mTOR. Is caveat right? bitcoin and
4: actually we pretty much uh, in a cashless society already. already
3: yeah. yeah, well, this is, I think it's, we are,
4: yeah. 90, what, 98% of transactions are virtual. You see, it's less visible in the U.S. where the use of cash is more, still more prevalent. But in Europe, over the last uh, decades, you've
2: seen... The use of cash, I don't think, is prevalent in the U.S. No, I think we all use more credit so than in, US. Oh, than in Europe, people card. use... Uh, can't you, use, ca- uh, can't you use cash to buy ca- uh, cars in the U.S.? I think you've been watching yeah. too much TV. I told Have you been watching 80s like show?
4: No, everybody US does shows?
0: things by by credit card now. Yeah. All right, mm-hmm. so it's the same. Yeah,
4: it's the same, and uh, so you can see it. Mostly. I think that's that's where it's
2: kind of was was.
0: We do, but think about if you're in control of the government, and you see all of these transactions going along, and you're looking at your pockets and saying, "Why isn't all this money in my pockets? What's going on mm-hmm. here?" You know, and I think that the government really does want to to get rid of the banks because they've been they've been in control too long. They've, they've controlled too much too long.
4: I don't. I'm not sure. There's much difference between the government and the bank. I think there is. At the there top, is. there might be uh, some collusion and uh, yeah. some top players who have their fingers in the several pies: banking, government.
2: Yeah, I have to. I mean, I
4: that, mean,
0: there's a banking cartel. You know, there is there's an but, intelligence cartel. There's a banking cartel. But the
2: question is, the only way the government and here you're talking about high level government, you know, super duper black.
0: We're talking about shadow, government. Oh, shadow, shadow government.
2: government behind the government type people. Uh, the only reason they would want to get rid of banks is if uh, there was some divergence in, their, in, in, in the plans or the, the agenda of those two entities. But if they're the same, uh, the banks are good for the shadow government and the shadow government good for the banks. And I'm not sure a political leaders, governments could
4: be in power without the
2: yeah, well, absolutely. Approval of
4: big players, mm-hmm. including uh, banking, uh, major players, and other
0: but you know I economic al- fields. I always argue for the fractured nature of the governments of the world. You mm. know, they're not. You know that there are these all these different factions, and I yeah. think that you know that that, that, that it seems it has the, it has it has all the fingerprints of of some sort of government think tank. This whole Bitcoin thing and the whole Tor thing and all this different stuff. I mean, it has the fingerprints all over it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I mean,
2: governments are more or less like a corporation, you know, uh, in terms of their relationship with yeah. the central banks of countries. You know, central yeah. banks fund uh, the government and the government can't operate, no. i.e. the government, uh, you know, um, the members of the government, the president and all of his people and stuff can't be in power and can't, you know, maintain their jobs right. essentially without the connivance of the central bank that funds it all, that funds the running of the country, you know what I mean? They can Members of government can be easily removed or taken down, or the country itself can be, right. you know, through public opinion. You have the central bank who puts a squeeze on the people, that gets yeah. them worked up, the people then demand a new government and those guys are out. So it's like, it's in the interest at least of the overt government right. uh, members to just you know, tip their hat to
0: the the central bankers cuz they're right. their employers essentially but look at like you know they have this, you have this problem in Greece and <clears throat> Spain and Cyprus and all these different places having this crisis and all this the the banks saying we're going to foreclose here there there might be this possibility that we're we'll foreclosed and you could see some people involved in the government um sitting there going like wait a minute they're screwing us too. It's, just, it's kind of like a backstab. You know. When, when a government is toppled by a bank, it's like a stab in the back. When it was a banana republic or it was down in South America, they were like, ha, 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 those South Americans, ha, ha, ha. And now it's starting to happen in Western countries. And you think that some of them probably are pausing and saying, hmm, wait a minute.
4: Some people tried. <clears throat> I think first the, the leaders, political leaders are not stabbed by the banks. They're not the, not the ones that are hit by the crisis engineered by the banks. Yeah. It's people. And probably those political leaders actually paid a lot to comply with those uh, decisions that go against the interest of the people. Okay. But historically, some some leaders have tried yeah. to rebel. So maybe they played nice with the banks they say, "Okay, I'm going to do this and that. I will comply." And along the way, they tried to apply the politics they really had in mind. That's the case of uh, François Mitterrand, a, a French. Uh, French president elected in 1981. He really had a a social vision, political vision, you know, <clears throat> trying to spread the wealth in a more balanced way, more just way. He started to do that in 1981, 1982, and 1982. They pull out the plug, and you see the you saw the franc something dropping down. But what people have to understand is that, and we talk about it with the genesis of federal banks and. Uh, and inflation and interest rate and uh, the power to create monetary mass, when you have the power to create currency and to define interest rate level, you basically control the country. You control the politicians, you control the companies, you control the citizens, their wage, their purchase power, their life. It's a very powerful tool. So most politicians comply, otherwise they will not be elected, quote-unquote. Some do not follow the script and they're quickly put back on the right track. Because if they don't comply, the country
2: will be economically destroyed. Yeah, we have another call here. Hi, caller. What's your name and where are you calling from?
6: Hi, this is Mike from uh, Baltimore, Maryland.
2: Hey, Mike. Welcome to the show. Hi, Mike.
6: Uh, Thanks for having the show.
2: Cool. Go ahead.
6: Well, I just wanted to mention a couple things. Uh, There are... A couple alternatives to uh, Federal Reserve notes and currencies and that were taken down uh, within the last couple years. One was e-gold and the other was Liberty Dollar. So they don't want an alternative to fractional reserve banking or paper currencies. And so it always made me wonder about Bitcoin. So I really appreciate uh the discussion you guys are having on it.
2: Yeah, what happened? To, what happened to eGold? You said it was taken down.
6: Yeah, they. When I think uh, they went after the founder of it, which pretty much took it down. And what eGold was was electronic currency backed by gold, yeah, where uh-huh. you could make payments and stuff like that. And Liberty Dollar was more. Uh, paper currency backed by silver that was outside of the regular government based <laughs> or or private bank federal reserve system, and they went after them. I think the secret service closed or closed them down, and secret service went after e gold as well and uh, Another comment to make is in terms of the difference with gold and silver nowadays in terms of investments and if you read heavily into like silver bug stuff or gold bug literature a lot of people say that silver is a better investment based on that it has a lot of modern uses and one of the things about it that's intriguing that a lot of people point to is it's using a lot of electronics and stuff like that and since the price is lower, it's not economically feasible to recycle the silver in the electronics so and unless the price went up, it wouldn't happen so throughout history, there's been a certain amount of silver mined, and depending on who you read uh it's a matter of how many ounces has been used up in industrial uses that'll never be taken out of uh be able to be recovered again so that's just something with uh gold it has less modern uses other than being used for people's <laughs> money or whatnot but silver does have a lot of modern uses like medical yeah. electronics and such
2: mm-hmm. yeah that's uh, a good point
0: yeah i agree
2: yeah and uh,
4: <clears throat> the e-gold uh, experience was interesting and uh, actually it's what's the way currencies have been valued until 1971 for the dollar and for until the second world war for some other currencies and it gave an interesting value to the currency if the gold backing was real. Uh, Until 1971, every dollar note was exchangeable in gold, physical gold. It would be interesting to know if what the the US treasure was claiming because owning was uh, really there. Mm-hmm. What is in Fort Knox are there, those uh, 8,000 tons <clears> of <throat> so physical gold there available. Mm-hmm. And at the same with those operators, it's definitely more reliable than a um, fiduciary money, fiduciary uh, currency. But you still have the question about the reliability of the operator. Does the operator own as much gold as the gold-backed currency it is issuing. Mm-hmm. So when comes the point when a crisis uh, develops and the uh, customers want their gold mm-hmm. or want their money, will the, the, the operator be able to provide? Mm-hmm. Yeah, they, well, De Gaulle we like the wanted
6: the gold from, uh, uh, from France. He wanted to, since the U.S. printed so much money and stuff like that or had so much debt based on the Vietnam War, the Nixon closed the gold window where governments couldn't exchange their U.S. currency for gold anymore. And that was, I think, what you're referring to in 1971. Exactly.
4: Yeah. 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 And, um, and since then, the value of dollar kept, has kept depreciating, dropping because uh, more and more money had been created and literally out of nothing. There was no more gold backing. There was no more
2: mm-hmm. reference in the actual world. Yeah, they started just, <clears throat> I mean, now, nowadays one a $1 note is exchangeable not for the value in gold or silver, but it's exchangeable for another dollar note.
4: Yeah, in uh, 1933, <laughs> you had uh, $1 was $1. Th- 35th of an ounce which is roughly a bit less than a gram so one dollar was one gram of gold today one gram of gold is about 46 dollars so it means the value of dollar mm-hmm. has dropped by a 46 yeah.
2: uh-huh. over 80 years mm-hmm. yeah. all right mike have you any other comments for us
6: well, just one last comment. There's a lot of speculation, and I read uh, Jim Sinclair's a pretty good uh, read about gold. And he mm-hmm. recently aired something that I've thought about is, where is what's happening to all this gold? You know, you have the paper markets with the com- comics, and then you have all these people buying gold on the physical market. And it's a matter of, you know, if you have a cabal of people that realize that, uh, paper currencies or what's happening with the economy is going to go bad and hyperinflation, eventually they'll decide, you know, we have to enrich ourselves and drain the gold out of the, the system. So, you know, that whether that's happening or not, it's so opaque to try and figure out what is actually going on. But that might be going on where the powers that be or whatnot and people that really see what's happening that have control and stuff like that might be draining gold out of the system from governments because governments have been for years selling gold that they had with agreements international agreements and where where's that gold been going so that's just the last comment i had
4: um, okay, well and uh, what you say is true at the same time over the last year you see some uh, change in behaviors among uh, <clears throat> among some countries, especially China and Japan, because yeah. in uh, 1971, another change um, decided by the uh, Nixon administration was to, uh, to trade oil and uh, some other major commodities in dollar. So since 1971, if you want to buy oil, you first have to buy dollar and trade in dollars, which creates an artificial demand for dollar, and which is one factor why the dollar doesn't collapse. And you have countries with a positive commercial balance, countries like China, countries like Japan who sell a lot, they get they get in a lot of dollars. And until recently, four or five years ago, they were stacking up dollar. And uh, then the policy started to change mm-hmm. and they've been massively buying gold yeah. and selling dollar because they probably see what's coming and what is, I think, unavoidable. We don't know the timing, but... Sooner or later, the, the very part.
0: low value of the dollar
4: will be obvious.
0: I mean, the sun is setting on on, on the western <clears throat> on the western empires. You know, I mean, the empires in the West are, are really kind of on the way out, and and the East is kind of in ascendancy right now. I mean, that's sort of the, the general trend that uh, I think everyone's been noticing.
3: Mm-hmm. Well, recently, Cyprus, in order to pay off or to begin paying off some of his debt to sell some of the uh, country's reserves of gold so you've got to wonder right there you know well who's that going to it's going to the european central bank for a debt that was incurred uh well we'll probably have to get into this by explaining a bit more detail yeah we'll let exactly you go how country gets...
6: yeah, go yeah ahead.
2: we'll let you go mike uh, if you have nothing else to to, to ask or tell us what uh, will not keep you on the line okay
6: no, I'm all done. Right. Thank you, guys. All right. all right. Thanks
2: for calling, Mike. Thanks, Thanks Mike. Mike yep. Bye.
3: Yeah, so let's go back to the basics. Uh, what is... Uh, oh, uh, Mike mentioned something there, fractional reserve lending.
2: What is that all about, fractional reserve lending? I don't understand. Well. Can we
0: go to a commercial break?
2: Do you need a commercial break? Yeah,
0: I'd like to go pee.
2: That's, uh, <laughs> no, okay. <laughs> a little too much information there, but that's pretty clear. We're going to go to a commercial P-M-I-G. break, and we'll we'll be back
7: in about a minute and a half. since ancient times great civilizations have risen and fallen the biblical plagues and the collapse of the old kingdom of Egypt the plague of Justinian and the collapse of the Roman Empire the Black Death that devastated Europe could similar catastrophes strike our planet again Laura Knight Yadchik's latest book Comets in the Horns of Moses provides compelling evidence that the course of human history has been defined by extraordinary and devastating cosmic events Drawing on her extensive study of history, religion, psychology, and physics, Laura uncovers clues hidden in the great myths, ancient astronomy, and the works of the Greek philosophers to unveil the secret knowledge of the ages, cyclical cosmic catastrophe, the periodical return of an extraterrestrial threat whose power moved mountains, reduced magnificent cities of old to rubble, and left the most powerful emperors trembling in fear. Comets in the Horns of Moses is a groundbreaking work that sheds light on our dark ages to reveal a timely warning to humanity. The clock is running down on our civilization. Comets in the Horns of Moses, available now for purchase from all Amazon websites.
2: Yes, indeed, Comets in the Horns of Moses is available from all Amazon websites right now, and it's a very important book for anybody who's interested in anything that you've ever read on Sot.net. It puts it all into perspective, uh, gives you the broad picture, and I really, I mean, uh, you might excuse me of being biased here, but I really have to say that it is a book that everybody needs to read, and even anybody that has a I think a 30% open mind or 20% open mind that you know of family member friend it's a it's a good book to uh, to give someone it might uh, might make the difference.
3: I also hope that by the end of this show it will also put this topic into perspective. True. We're absolutely, we'll be getting there because uh history of econ- uh, economies up and down is not what we generally think it is. H- the history has shown that an economy goes up and down in much bigger cycles or waves, if you like. So we'll be getting on to that soon. Pierre, there are a lot of technical terms.
4: It yeah? doesn't mean that there is no human-engineered crisis. Most crises are engineered yeah, by human beings, over. by big financial institutions. However, there's a point where the external pressure is this, so high that human operators, even big financial operators, cannot do anything to the.
3: what is going on. Yeah. So yeah. Okay. No. Yeah. That's it. Good point. Um, there are a lot of technical terms here that people. Mike, the last caller brought up on fractional reserve lending. Yeah. Also, I think a central bank needs to be explained. Now, everyone's familiar, right? Okay, the central bank. Yeah. So what? A central bank is a privately run institution. Yes and no. <clears throat> yes and no. I mean,
4: yes and no in the sense that uh, some are privately held, some are publicly held, but in the end, it's not in the power of the citizen to decide the policy of the central bank. You never had a votation where you were asked to vote for, okay, shall we increase the interest rate by one point or decrease it by one point? You have a group of individuals, a small group of individuals who decide of the monetary policy, basically, how much money we create. And what's the interest rate? Um, well, the typical example is Jekyll Island, 1910, where you have seven mega bankers who meet secretly on this Jekyll Island place in a, along the, the U.S. coast. Seven bankers amongst whom you have uh, Rockefeller, uh, Warburg, and uh, J.P. Morgan. Those seven bankers hold 25% of the world wealth. They are big players. And together, they conspire. as a word, it's a conspiracy, secret collective uh, project that will be applied in 1913 and basically put in the hand of the US Central Bank, which is a private entity, the power, which is a very big power to decide of the monetary policy. And by the way, the Federal Reserve, Uh, which was created during this meeting, is not federal, it has nothing public, it has nothing to do with a vote and citizen's choice, it's not a reserve, it's not backed by gold, it's not backed by anything, it's fiat fiat money, money created out of nothing, out of a printer at this time.
3: That that was something that, when I first learned this, it was so simple and so devious and I thought, how... (laughs) How have they got away with this for so long? It, it took where, them three does money, years. where does money come from? Well, you know, it's assumed that for every debt, for every loan given, somewhere, somewhere else, it's owed. To, something is owed back to somebody. But when you get to the center of this web, the money is literally created out of thin air. Can,
4: can you explain a bit? It's even worse than that. It's uh, yeah, the money is created out of thin air, basically. At the time, you were printing notes because the money was circulating through notes, basically. Today, it's even more virtual. It's just an operation between bank computers. Or you see on your bank statement, when your company, your employer pays you, you see plus X thousand dollars. There's no note. There's no gold. There's nothing transiting between you, the bank, the employer. It's totally virtual. It's just a figure. And basically, I say it's worse because on one side, the money is created out of nowhere, but this creation generates inflation. The more money you have, the lower the value of your money. So it's a tax. It's a tax on people. And this money that you created out of nothing doesn't go in the pocket of the citizens. If you look at this quantitative easing, the novlang. <clears throat> quantitative easing, it's more than $1,000 billion that is injected in banks. The very one who designed the crisis, the subprime crisis. But in the end, all those people who got their house foreclosed because of this credit abuse and this bank manipulation, the house they gave to the banks, or the horses, was a real house. And the sweat, they sweat for hours doing their work to buy this house was real sweat, it was real li- labor. So the banks, with money created out of nothing, got your time, they got your house, they got your furniture, and they even get your future, your pension, yeah, and, the fu- and your future income. Mm-hmm. Because at least in uh, in France, and I don't know about the U.S., but when you are debtor, when you get bankrupt, there will be the court that we say, okay. From now on, every month, from your bank account, from your salary directly, will be will take five hundred euros, one thousand euros to pay you
2: debt. So, yeah, it all started with the, originally. So we're talking about it. that money uh, was originally stored by people in well, not originally, but at a certain point, many hundred years of years ago, it was stored as gold or precious metals. And that was, you know, then uh, uh, someone who a bank essentially just was was set up to store someone sort of bank to store those yeah. uh, precious metals that were people's wealth.
4: Yeah, the, the one of the beginnings historically that gives a perspective uh, to this transition from physical gold as money to uh, notes is yeah, that the Templars along the the crusade routes, the Knights nice Templar. Yeah, had uh-huh. that posts, you know. And for travelers, it, and they created the antique traveler check. You are a traveler, you want to go to Mecca or to Middle East or whatever along this route. And you know it's a dangerous place and you don't want to go there with your gold because you don't want your gold to be stolen. So you go to a Templar post in your town in Paris, for example. You give your gold, say one ounce. In exchange, the Templar post writes you a note saying, okay, one ounce worth of sign and stamp and all that. And you go with this note to Mecca and to the Mecca post or Jerusalem post, Templar post. You show this note in exchange, the Templar over there will give you one ounce of gold. That's the genesis, one of the genesis of uh, money
2: as a as knot, a as a piece of paper. Okay, yes, yeah, so it started and spread from there. That caught on, that idea caught on of someone holding your your gold, your precious mm-hmm. metals, and giving you something that you could redeem the value of them elsewhere or with other people. And then eventually people said, okay, well, let's just use these notes. Let's exchange these notes with each other. And therefore, you had paper money, essentially. And um, But the idea being that your gold was always redeemable from the original source or from any other source. Yeah. And then, you know, so the whole banking system started where well, well, the bankers.
3: Well, they were still goldsmiths. And what they started to realize was that. People um, never came to take their never gold. Never came out. to claim their gold, and they will, were able to start loaning out more than what the they owned. Exactly, but that's that's the problem, though. The whole idea of loaning, well, because we
2: haven't got to loaning here. <clears throat> we're just talking about people who had their gold, give it to a banker, got a, a note, uh, a credit—not credit note, but a note that that said you have this much gold, you can then redeem it elsewhere. Uh, but then the the, the, the Goldsmiths or holders of people's gold, like you just said, decided that they would, uh, that they because people never came to get, get the gold, they could give the gold to other people. But somewhere along the line, people decided that they needed loans, that they didn't have enough of their own precious metals to get what they wanted, so they had to go and ask someone for them. You know, I mean, like usury, lo-
0: what are you talking about? And there? then, and
2: then they immediately they decided to charge an interest on that. If I give you some of this gold, which isn't mine, which is someone else's, but that person never comes to get it, so I'm going to loan it to you temporarily, you give it back to me with a bit extra for the pure, simple fact of you don't have any. I'm giving you some, therefore you have to pay for that. Not just give it back to me at some point, but pay for it. And they were making all this interest off loaning out other people's money, that initially the other people who were, who, who owned the gold said, "Well, we want a, we want a cut of this. You know, you're getting all this all this interest that you're charging these poor people who don't have the money. You're getting interest from them, and they're paying you back at plus. So we want some of that plus. So then you had basically bankers. That's essentially the origin of the idea of a, of a banker, of a bunch of bankers getting together, setting themselves up, and and, and expanding this this concept out."
3: And And, and for the the longest time, usury, that is, charged interest on something you give to someone, in this case money, was considered immoral and and illegal. After
4: the concile the usury interest rate was considered as illegal and immoral for a very simple reason. Usury comes from the French and Latin word usure, which means tear down. You, you could have interest rate. If I lend something to someone, I can charge interest rate when, because when he returns the good, the good, good tore down. It has less value. So to compensate this loss in value,
2: mm-hmm. you pay a, a premium. You pay yeah, a, and they, ju- they justified it by the potential threat that the, the, the risk that these bankers uh, uh, incurred of not getting it back at all. Right, because when they lend something out, there's a possibility that they won't actually get it back so that their their right to charge interest was justified on the risk that they were taking. But it still doesn't... That was a justification. But it doesn't explain the fact that most of it wasn't their, their money to lend out anyway in the first place, you know? Yeah, there, there are two, two problems. There, were, there is this uh, two problems that go together
4: today, that we face today. Today, banks, in the end, they lend money that they don't have, that is not backed by anything tangible or valuable intrinsically, and uh, they charge interest rates. rates. Mm-hmm. And there is a <clears throat> this interest rate thing is also pernicious in the sense that uh, to make it simple, imagine you're a central bank, you issue 1 billion euros, 1 billion dollars, okay? And this, you distribute this 1 billion dollars to okay, people around this table and all the listeners of the show. Okay, you all have uh, 1 million dollars. Okay, that's Thanks good. There. And everybody's happy. But you have to to pay back the, the central bank and the interest rates. And uh, you're gonna pay back slowly over 20 years. So with a 5% interest rate, you have to pay back 2 million. But that doesn't really matter because in 20 years, you could uh, use this money and uh, make it fructify and grow and invest, okay? <clears throat> but imagine if the central bank only created $1 billion, okay? before there was more money, how all of us are we going to be able to pay back $2 million? There is only uh, one billion uh, in circulation, and how can we pay back
3: two billion? There isn't enough money out there for all of us to do it. Some of it is going to get burned.
4: Exactly. And that's where banks manage to seize tangible, real assets Mm -hmm. after lending virtual, created from nothing money to interest rates. Mm
3: -hmm. So, built into a system, then people are going to lose.
2: It's their really? house, their money, their future, yeah. their, their lives. labor. People say that money, the dollar isn't backed, or paper money isn't backed by anything tangible, but it is.
0: Yeah, it's backed it's by It's backed your by
2: everybody else in your communities, houses, cars, and possessions. Yeah. Uh, the, te- te- technically... The, the loan. The loan, the loan. yeah, uh, the
4: loan. The currency is uh, another okay, story. Yeah. The loan. But the loan, yeah. Whatever, uh, <laughs> the evolution of the dollar, up to down, sure. But today, money,
2: you cannot pay your loan. The bank gets a house. But today, money is loans, essentially. Money is debt. It money is. is created from debt. Yeah. So in a, in, a, in a strange way, you could say that, you know, for example, um, if everybody pays back, there's no more, no more money. That's for for example, if I go to the bank, if I have a, if I have a positive cre- uh, cr- credit in the bank, with the bank, and my neighbor has a negative, he has a loan, he owes the bank money. And there's a run on the banks or something something along the lines where I suddenly say, I want all my money. I want all my assets, you know. What is my money back with? And there's hyperinflation going on and I'm saying, listen, I want something tangible here. I don't want the paper money really so much. I want what it's back with, because originally the idea is that the money is backed by something tangible. And right now with the state of the economy, what would give me back would buy me, you know, half a loaf of bread. I don't want another half loaf of bread, half a half a slice of bacon. And I do not I wa- w I don't I don't want <laughs> That's not enough. Yeah, so what have you, you, you got? What, what, what have you got? And he says, well, we've got your neighbor's house. Well, we can give you a bedroom in there maybe. That's about mm-hmm. the equivalent of what you uh, what you hold on with a bank. You know, Ultimately, yeah, that's the what they would have to offer
0: people. That's what it's all back with. But all they, they have is all the possessions. The worst, no. thing is, the worst thing is is that rule only applies to them. When they need to get their money back, they can take your house. But when you need to get your money back, you're screwed if yes. something's happened. You would not get their building. And no. No. there's
4: something worse. Isn't? A – they lend money that doesn't exist, they don't have. It's a mm-hmm. virtual, it's a dream yes. or oh, a nightmare. In addition, because of this... Uh, Fractional reserve lending. Fractional reserve lending. Mm-hmm. When a bank gets $1 in deposit, it is allowed to lend between 10 and $30, depending on the rules and the way you, mm-hmm. you apply it. That means that not only banks... Deal with money that that is virtual, but in addition, it doesn't even have the money or enough money to pay back all the depositors mm-hmm. because it lends 30 times more than what it has, and what it has is uh, written money, paper money. Yeah. So,
2: yeah, exactly. But so so they can always just create
4: more money and pay it back. Why well, know, well, that's what they do. Uh, the quantitative easing 2008. That's an interesting story. Maybe you can yeah sorry quickly go for so one way to make money is bubbles and bubbles basically as citizens we are always losers because we're not insiders we don't have the information so basically you have a cartel of big players that decide okay we're going to create a bubble here or there it 2000 biotechnology 2002 real estate after 2002 the money is out of the biotech market of the it market there's a new, they need a new place to speculate and make a bubble. They do a bubble in the real estate. How do they do that? You reduce interest rate and you start giving loans for people to buy houses. You don't check the credit rating. You don't check the income. You don't check the history, the perspectives. and get money and they give money and money and money. And everybody buys houses. Every citizen wants to have its own house. I mean, it's a legitimate uh, desire. You buy a house, and actually the guarantee of your loan is your house. So you borrow, say, $400,000. You buy a house that is $400,000. And here is the first slide. A widespread belief. Real estate market over the long term always goes up. This uh-uh. is simply not true. You look at places around the world, towns that have been totally deserted. The house had a value before. Now the value is zero, and it will be zero forever. First line, so the idea is to guarantee the loan with the house. The loan is 400000 the house is 400000 the real estate market will go up over time. So it will be five hundred, six hundred thousand. And 600000 In any case, even if you lose your job, your incomes, you can pay back the loan with your house. OK? Once you reach a critical mass of uh, people who borrowed money, who have this house, actually it's a bank who owns the house, um, you pull the plug. To pull the plug, it's quite easy. You just increase interest rates. And that's one of the mega powers of central banks. And you see by just turning this knob, interest rate knob, the devastating effect it can have. By increasing the interest rate, you increase the payment, monthly payment, owed by borrowers to the bank. Because in the US and in are more and more, the interest rate is variable. So you have to pay more. Every month, And the more interest rate increases, the more you have to pay, and you reach a point where more, most households, they cannot pay back. So you go into bankruptcy. So the bank gets the house back. But then, after artificially increasing the value of the real estate market by giving a lot of loans, and everybody buys, and then the price of houses goes up, now you pull out the plug, increase interest rate, nobody can Buy anymore? The loans are too expensive, and people who already bought cannot pay the loan back. Foreclosure: the banks get houses. A lot of houses for sale on the market. The market collapse, and now your four hundred thousand dollar house cannot cover the amount you owe because not only you owe four hundred thousand, but you owe interest too over twenty years, multiplied by two, roughly. You owe now eight hundred thousand dollars but the house is only market value, $200,000. So in the operation, you lost six hundred dollars, $600,000. Mm-hmm. And then, well, the story is not over. So the banks made big, big money in this interest. They gave money that does not exist in exchange. They got a lot of houses, a lot of properties, a lot of land, tangible goods. But some banks have been investing so much in some speculative products Linked to uh, real estate uh, loans, you know, that uh, that start to lose money, some of them, and they're close to bankruptcy. You see, the government, the central bank didn't do anything to save the citizens who were losing their house, their, uh, all their money. But when some banks start to be threatened to be close to bankruptcy, the government decides for quantitative easing. One more than almost two trillion dollars. Two trillion dollars to save banks. But how this money affects the country? Those two trillion dollars dilute the existing monetary mass. So the Americans who got screwed the first time and who saw their house stolen by the banks because they got lured into this uh, loan scheme, subprime scheme, in addition the government issues more money to the central bank and dilutes even more their purchase power
2: not because their money, they say, not their just, wage, it's not easy worth it. Yeah, it's not just it's not just the purchase power. I mean, this has happened. What you're describing is exactly what happened in the economic crisis of the past few years. And it seems that they picked particular countries to inflict this on, almost like the test cases. You know, yeah. And Ireland was one of them. And um, what what you're describing is that people were the banks forced the bank, I mean it's really disgusting. It's so corrupt and so horrible what they did. And it's not it's not complicated. You know, people shouldn't think that it's so complicated. As Pierre just described, the the banks for the, in the previous years before the crisis, the banks were shoving credit cards on people. They were harassing people. I know this personally because I was there at the time. They were harassing people to take credit cards. We can give you a credit card in five minutes. Just you know. If you just say yes, they'll call you up and just say just yes down the phone line. Yeah. You know, even automated, you know, yeah, do you want a credit card? Uh, yes. Okay, you now have 10 grand credit on, uh, we'll send you a new credit card, you have extra 10 grand in your account, boom, loan, whatever, you know, and people just took it, uh, and that's the only blame that you can ascribe to people, is that they took it, but I mean, it was totally irresponsible of the banks to do that, so they push all this credit, all these loans on people, and then... Suddenly, they, they, they st- on people that can't, that really couldn't afford ultimately to pay them back and pushed uh, mortgages on people that couldn't afford to pay them back. And then they started trading like a bunch of freaking jackals, you know. The bankers and the hedge fund managers all around the world were trading essentially in all of these people and everybody's debt, in your debt, in your mortgage, in your car repayments. They're just packaging all those together, hundreds of thousands of them, and saying, all oh, these are good, you know, and they were the whole subprime mortgage crisis was that they were saying that they were taking a bunch of mortgages that they had given that the banks had pushed to people that most of them were unlikely to be able to pay them back, and but they were saying that oh these are solid, these are gold, these are perfect, these these are you'll get a lot of money and and sell them on at the interest because there's interest attached to the mortgage, sell them on around the world to investment funds and and then ultimately they were passing them on to each other and ultimately it became clear that they were selling dodgy goods that weren't actually up to the value, weren't
3: worth what they were being sold for. Those things they were selling, CDOs, collateralized debt obligations and all these, all these bland, inane terms, what they effectively were, were new forms of currency. They were new forms of money. It was money. It was basically money. money that's, how, that's how ridiculous money has gotten these days. they that- were betting on other people's money.
4: Again. Yeah.
3: <clears throat> and
4: um, also, the, the, the slow played it. Did, it was really insidious yeah. because the real estate bubble grew for about six years until 2008, from mm-hmm. 2002 to 2008. So mm-hmm. uh, you can imagine your neighbor, you know, he gets a house and the value increases. He sets the house, he buys a bigger house. He's rich. He looks rich. You know, there was this social proof thing. Mm-hmm. And everybody was into this frenzy, and it worked. interest rates were low, and they lied a lot, or they manipulated a lot about interest rates to sell you this variable interest rate mortgage. Mm-hmm. They were showing the stats; and it was true. Interest rates were very low, and they were going down, and they went down for a lot, uh, for a while. So, I won't blame people to,
2: to for buying a house. Well, what what the bankers? Yeah, exactly, for being pressured to buy a house or to buy a house at an inflated price, but. What these bankers were doing was, was were selling on these mortgages and packages to each other. And they were you're trying to sell them on each one would sell it on at a higher price saying, oh yeah, this one's good. Let's package this one up as, as being a triple A rating, sell it on, we'll make some money on the next, Eventually someone's left holding holding the baby, you know, carrying the can and uh, and they say, oh crap, you know, I just paid a bunch of money for something that's not worth half of it, you know, because all these people aren't going to pay back their mortgages. These are dodgy mortgages, these are people can't pay it back. So then it's like, oh, the poor banks. But these guys were speculating, right? They were gambling. So
0: if you lose on a gamble, it's your fault. They were cooking people. I mean, plain and
2: simple. But yeah, but they they were the ones who were gambling, right? On really? on they were they were betting. They were they were you know let me buy that and see if I can. It's kind of like a gamble, you know, where I buy something from you some and of I them were, obviously. and I try and sell it on yeah. to Pierre, I mean, a lot you know, of those And make some long. money off it. Yeah. But. The bottom line is they, they start to say, oh, the poor bank's left. And then they go and bail them out with, like, as Pierre just mentioned, with, with taxpayers' money from, from the with government money, taxpayers' money. They give all this money to these banks who were left holding a bunch of dodgy mortgages. But those banks weren't actually really down anything because even if they were holding mortgages that they had paid for that people couldn't pay back and they weren't going to get the interest rates on them, those banks then could claim Essentially, the per- people's house, because that's what was—that was the collateral. Ultimately, there was collateral in the form of people's houses and cars, right. right? That that were tied to, tied to these, I think it's to these.
0: more insidious.
2: So, but despite the fact that they still had this collateral, these poor banks that were left on the can, the the central banks, uh, or the the International Monetary Fund, and came in and demanded, and the central banks of Ireland, for example, demanded that taxpayers, taxpayer money. Be donated given to them right. to pay back but all of these dollars and but you know what the taxpayers so you, you have people who these banks then went took the people's houses said listen I, I i own a mortgage i own your mortgage it's been passed to me i own your mortgage and uh you can't pay it back i just realized so um i'm, I'm going to be wanting your house so out of your house it's mine now plus i get a big little compensation from taxpayers money for my right. trouble type of thing and but the person who gets kicked out of the house, when the taxpayer's money goes to the bank who already just got your house, the taxpayer gets the ta- or the, the bank gets the ta- the house, the taxpayer's money, and the guy who gets kicked out of his house, then not only finds him without a heart, ho- without a house, but because a lot of taxpayer's money is being given to the bank who just took your house, you also have to take a cut in your in your social security money if you're unemployed or your childcare for your wife or various social services, all of those were
0: but it's were were
2: hit insidious. because of the
0: money that was given to the banks. It's so much more insidious. It's it's a classic con. You know, they always say that you can't, you know, crook an honest person. And a lot of these people they got fed up they got fed up into this whole idea of gotta have the house, gotta have the car, gotta have the T V, right? Yeah. So that was their hook to to scam people. And what it was, it was one, it was a giant land grab. And the second thing is it was to facilitate the necessity of the quantitative easing so that it would push a larger part of the population into deeper poverty Basically, Mm -hmm. because that's what happened because it wasn't just taxpayers' money. It was more fake money was added to the system, Mm -hmm. and that pushed them deeper into poverty because they were more impoverished after their their money was given to the banks than they were before. So Mm -hmm. like Pierre was saying, they had this debt. You know first, it was four hundred thousand. then, with all the you know whatever the the interest rates, it was going to be eight hundred thousand. They had this house that was worth four hundred thousand suddenly the house was only worth two hundred thousand right so then they could only pay off two hundred thousand worth of their debt now they're in the whole six hundred thousand and then with the quantity of eating, it pushes them down even more so that they they have even less money and less wealth to pay it off with so hmm. it's like a, it's a, it's a it's a double con it's a double screw, and I think ultimately the point was to expand. Poverty. Of course, that's that's exactly what I'm saying.
2: I mean, but when they took your house, if you can't pay back your mortgage on a house that you paid eight hundred thousand for, and because it's now only worth two hundred thousand, the bank takes your house. Your debt's cleared. Basically, they've taken. I mean, you have no more money. It
0: should be. but it's, it's not actually.
2: No, well, for most people, it is. I mean, you're bankrupt. That's it. Your bank. The bank can't get any more out of you other than your house. But the problem, like they were saying, that, that came after that was the fact that they then stripped all this money from the economy, which had a direct effect. It wasn't just like paper, you know, for the person who was kicked out of his house and then for whatever reason lost his job or whatever. He then wasn't getting any unemployment or was getting half the unemployment benefit because the IMF came in and said, listen, in order to uh, – uh, because you're, you have to pay all this money to the banks, you can't put it into uh, social funds. That would, if I said, it was such a screw job and it was horrible. But we've got a call here. Hang on. Hi, What's your name? Where are you coming from?
8: Call from. Can you hear me? Your voice is low.
2: Yeah, we'll try and speak up here.
8: Okay, yeah, we're hearing
2: yeah. All yeah.
8: right. I came here because I saw the Bitcoin Gold and the Cash of Society title. Yeah. So I, I presume you've already covered Bitcoins. So I'd like to have. Um, a synopsis about what you think about it, what you think the future of it is going to be.
0: Okay, I'll try. We're a bit undecided, to be quite honest. Mainly, we just you know talked about the nature of it. I mean, there's there's a couple of different possible ideas. It could be uh, the savior of us all, and it could be uh, the product of a, a sort of government-oriented think tank for promoting a cashless society, a proving ground for mm-hmm. a cashless society kind of techniques. Um, it's a it's an interestingly designed system um, it's not super private like everyone's claiming and't
8: um, I, I, I don't understand the value of it at all
3: the value of
8: it yeah.
3: <clears throat> okay the value of it just, well we discussed this and it seems that the perceived value of it the people how mm-hmm. is is that it's offered for its privacy. It affords the ability to do transactions where the government and the banks
0: can't seize Candy your funds. Fear it, yeah. And that's only partially true. It's like PayPal and your bank can't seize your funds, but the government still probably could. Um, so it doesn't really protect you in that sense. Its value is just that it's.
8: It's new. That's about it. It's a novelty.
0: Yeah, you complete it's a novelty.
8: transactions over the net, and even though it was yeah. started by somebody that hardly anybody knows anything about, and it's supposed to be encrypted and supposed to be limited all of that can go right out the window if the person gets drunk one day and feels that he just wants to blow up the bitcoin value maybe because it dropped down value about a week or so ago so i don't understand the value of it some people are actually engaging it more than just online and i can't see that but that's them so um you know that's my uh, point of view on it It, uh, people say that because it it has a limited amount, therefore it has some value. To me, that's bull, because uh, it's run by one person or one organization. If that organization wants to pump it up, he can pump it up. If yep. he wants to change the rules, he can change the rules. Um, and as far as I'm concerned, gold doesn't have much value, uh, certainly not like it did years, centuries ago when gold was considered extremely um, valuable. Uh, even then, that was, to me, nothing more than just a tool of um, I understand the value of money so that people don't have to exert a lot of effort doing barter, but the fact that we have anything um, gold or any so-called precious metal as, as the backing for it to me is um, is a false premise
4: right okay okay you, sir. No, no. You, you, uh, <clears throat> you have a point because the problem of gold market and any market is that uh, it's rigged you have cartels monopoles oligopoles collusive oligopoles that can uh, push up or down the market whenever they want. The problem with gold, although there is a limited supply of physical gold, is that most transactions are virtual transactions on gold. Futures, put and call and ETF. 80% of transaction, or maybe 90% of transactions are uh, virtual gold. People who don't have gold who can push the price up or down. So even gold and uh, other tangible assets are not immune to speculation, and you, we can see it right now. You can see fluctuations of gold price that have nothing to do with objective factors that should affect the market. Uh, the recent plunge in gold happened at the same time uh, when uh, Germany was claiming its, uh, its gold that is in the US, 400 tons. China was announcing that it will increase its gold reserve at 1,000 tons. At the same time, the gold market
0: plunges. Well, I mean... Like, like what he just said, though, I mean, in a certain sense, all currencies are, are a little bit faith-based. I mean, you, people agree.
8: They agree so that don't have, value. have any gold. problem with fiat money um, as, long yeah, as, yeah. It, as long as it's run properly, as long as it is backed by the government that isn't corrupt. Because if you're going to use fiat money as a measure of paying your taxes, that gives it credibility because then businessmen have to have that certain type of paper in order to pay taxes to the government. But if the government is corrupt, then it's going to print up like uh, Bernanke and Volker and Greenspan forum. So it's going to flood the market with uh, cheap paper and make the cheap paper even cheaper. Gold by itself, though, is not the panacea. Gold is just mm-hmm. metal. Yeah, yes. I agree with yes. that. You
0: but know, that's why Bitcoin was interesting in the fact that it was an answer to the problem of let's just print more money, and with Bitcoin, can't. So that was why it had this sort of like tech appeal is, oh, that particular problem is kind of solved, you can't just spent more. But again, it always comes down to face face You know, the dollar, fine, cool, but he's, he's right in what he says, that part of the problem is always going to be the corrupt uh, bankers and politicians yeah. involved in the system. You know, who cares what you're trading in? Make it seashells, make it, you yeah. know, Well, make it
8: so that you can redeem it for something which is worthwhile. If you're going to redeem it for gold, and Nixon took us off the gold standard in 71 as a result of the Gaul wanting to take all of his reserves and trade it in for gold, if you're going to trade it in for gold, then eventually there's going to be a um, competition by the nations to see who can uh, redeem each other's gold uh, reserves. So, to me, it's nonsense. Like I said, centuries ago gold had some sort of significance because back then Christopher Columbus was sailing around the world for spices. That's how dull the world was at that time. You would kill for salt, and you would kill for gold because it was glittery, because it didn't evaporate. Um, It stayed shiny. It was an element. People didn't know anything about the periodic table at that time, but it was long-lasting. So people, if they had jewelry, they were probably considered... um, the trumps of their time. But nowadays, what good is gold? I mean, if well, we're going was... to have an economic collapse, I would rather have cigarettes to trade than gold. Yeah, yeah, exactly. exactly.
4: <laughs> you have one point. In that. I, I do think that gold is less bad than uh, fiat money in the sense that it has some intrinsic value, but definitely at this point in time
5: Inflated. with the,
4: the... or deflated, uh, with the perspective of... Uh, economic collapse, it might be wise to invest more in a tangible assets, useful assets, knowledge, books, yeah. cigarettes, trucks, tools. Yeah. A log point,
8: point actual of wealth. <laughs> wealth that you can actually barter if we're going to reach that particular type of business. Yeah, stuff that people need. Don't yeah. to need needed solvable goods. Yeah, I would rather have uh, seeds for a garden than, you know, a truck full of gold. Yeah. Um
0: that's, you know, they, so, they say some bad shit happens, everything collapses. Mm. You know, what are you gonna do with a truck full of gold? I mean, what are you, who who's gonna want it? it yeah. You know? Yeah, and
4: here one factor. It's not black and white. I think uh, one factor is the. It depends on the magnitude of the crisis, uh, and usually the, cri- the crisis it might not come overnight. So you might have plenty of time when things worsen in a way trade goes on and. The, at this point, silver or gold
6: can be used
4: But when yes. you reach the point where you have only pockets of survival, i.e. there is no more trade at all, you don't need currencies, you don't need gold, you don't need silver, yeah. you, you, you're not bought to shelter. There's the no
8: more barter. No, if the abyss is that bad, there'll have to be bought, there'll have to be um, a black yes. market, there'll have to be barter, and then eventually um, currency will be built up, and the first currency will probably be cigarettes. Um, after that, would probably be some uh, sort uh, of medicine, salt, something like that.
0: Charles, we're going to say Roman soldiers were once paid in salt.
8: Yeah. Huh? I can't hear you. Roman,
0: I said Roman soldiers were once paid in salt.
8: Well, that's. Oh, okay. I didn't know that, but that goes to confirm my particular theory about how uh, spices years ago, you know, was the incentive to have the Pentilla the, the Maria yeah. Santa Luisa, what was it? Nina, the Pence, and Santa Maria go around the world. Um, Those people were living a dull life. They didn't have floors. They had um, wooden, they had what? um,
0: Probably had dirt most of the time. Dirt,
8: dirt floors. And they had to sweep them out, and they had no glass windows, and they were leading a life of quiet desperation. So um, that's what they had, and gold brought some value to their life. And people also (laughs) forget that when gold first started, um when the gold traders first started to trade the receipts for gold for and to make it money people were trading in their own particular stash of gold not government accrued gold
4: yeah it's
8: a huge difference
4: well, what we can say at this point where we we have some idea of some possible futures, but uh, during the recent past since uh, 1971 for example there have been a constant erosion of currencies because of this massive creation of uh, current of money. And gold, like other assets actually, have been uh, an interesting investment to protect yourself sure. against inflation.
8: Oh yeah, and, and people will continue to buy gold because they are trained to believe that gold is somehow is valuable.
2: Yeah, well you gotta got just watch, watch the way, watch the trends and the way things are going, you know, because gold can be, like right now gold, I mean, if, if you bought gold uh, 10 years ago, and you kept it till today, you've made, you know, three, four, 400% profit over mm-hmm. time, you know, but it has a limited value, you know, depending on the circumstances, you know?
8: Well, if the, um, if the economy is good, gold is, gold is going to drop down to whatever the market value will bear. It'll surely be less than $1,000. probably shouldn't even be any more than about $40, $50. But the thing mm-hmm. is, is that gold does not have any intrinsic value. I understand it's properties for money, because it's uh, it can't be tarnished. Uh, when it's mixed with other alloys, it's um, fairly it lasts for a fairly long time. But at the same time, it has an intrinsic value, it has none. Yeah,
0: part, and, it has a little bit of a,
8: a little bit of value. Bit. If 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 what's
2: being traded is minerals, then gold. Is-
8: well, decay. well, okay. But <laughs> yeah. that
2: kind of thing, but it's only when in the situation where minerals are the the currency of trade type of
8: thing, you know. Well, okay, in that case, I'll still trade platinum because if you're going to yeah. have minerals, I need, I need I need a trade. catalytic converter.
2: <laughs> yeah, but here's another here's another interesting point. This uh, on the salt thing that you mentioned, uh, Pierre mm-hmm. said Rome, or uh, Jay said Roman soldiers were paid in salt. That's where the word salary comes from. Oh, really? Because yeah, the Latin yeah, salarium. Ah. And the word salary came from the word salt That was, ah. that was actually a listener uh, Sent me that in, uh, Robin
0: ah, Anyway, nice. so, Yeah, I mean Throughout history, I mean Currencies have been things like tradable goods Like you we were talking about spices Was, was a big thing mm-hmm. uh, Fabrics and textiles uh, imported from different areas Were very mm-hmm. important You know, I mean It's what people want and what people agree on As being valuable in the end You know, I mean in, in, in sparta what
8: governments agree on Because people don't <clears> know the difference
0: and sometimes it is what governments agree on. In, in Sparta, they took iron coin, coins and quenched them in vinegar so they were completely and totally useless for anything else. But that was the currency of Sparta because mm. they banned gold and silver. Mm. And, and they they're, they lived for, you know, 800 years doing just basically that mm. and, until they allowed the gold and silver back in and then everything fell apart and went things up. But, I mean, so it's whatever you agree on. Paper money, it's okay. You know, shells. I mean, shells were probably one of the earliest currencies ever used, just seashells. Yeah.
8: Well, so you know? were the sticks in Hawaii, where you could put notches mm. in them, and yeah. you could use them as currency, too. The thing is, you know, I see gold as a valuable means of exchange, but not as an intrinsic value type of good. Yeah. Um, and I can't see seashells or, you know, stuff I'm like that because... You can well salt I can see to a degree because you can't create more salt; you can only find it, just like with and, um, and, gold. And, and
0: you will die without it. It's one of the one of the things that uh, you have to have salt mm-hmm. here. But here
4: is such an important point: is uh, fundamentally a currency <clears throat> purpose is to its trade, and hence its value is purely a convention; it's a social convention. Mm-hmm. Whatever you use, gold. There is a small intrinsic value because there are some use of gold for industry, jewelry, things like that. But like seashells, shells, like twigs in Hawaii, or it's a convention, circumvention. a convention. So the problem is not what kind of currency you use, paper with a $1 written on it, or gold or seashells, is it's the way it's managed. And I come here, the polarization factor. If the currency was managed properly and was an objective reflection of the wealth of the country that issues it, if it had an objective value that fits the claimed value, well, would there say, would be no
8: problem with currency. Mm-hmm. In your opinion, what would be the objective value to give um, currency its greatest value? Objectively speaking, what do you think should be the foundation for a currency's real value, other than paying taxes? It
3: it, it would be it would be uh, a currency that is issued by the government, not by a private interest, and it would be interest-free, a non-corrupt government. Actually, the, the question it goes:
4: the currency. If you start to look at the economic fundamentals, the currency is only a, <clears throat> a vector, so, something that to trade, supplies and demand of labor, of equity, capital, goods, things like that. So, I think one of the fundamentals to establish the objective value of a currency is to find the proper, the quantity of available labor, available resources, goods, and demand. It would be the and economy, find the balance.
8: that's the hmm? answer. It would be the economy. Um, yeah, the real one. Yeah, a real economy, manufacturing. Because if you're going to, for example, what, if you're going to um, try to figure out why is our dollar worth any kind of value compared to other currencies, in other words, why would you want to trade your dollar in for another person's yen, another person's Deutsche Mark? Is because of, of what it can buy in that other country. Exactly. So if that country is producing nothing, then that currency is worth nothing.
0: Precisely. Basically, like work, pretty much work,
7: industrial work. So not work, work because work industry. is labor.
8: I mean, if you just if you work, you can work at a salt mine and um, not produce much. You can even work for an oil mine, not produce much. Right. But if you, actually have, if you actually manufacture goods, that actually increases the lifestyle of the people within that right. nation. That's right. the economy I'm talking about. And that's yes. what's ruining us because 10 million jobs or 6 million jobs have gone yes. either overseas or have disappeared in the last 10 years, manufacturing right. jobs. And, and then when you go back 30 years, even more than that have disappeared. So our country is slowly imploding upon itself. And that would be the real downfall of our dollar, is the fact yeah, that no. we can't um, we can't produce anything, hardly produce anything anymore.
2: True. All right, man. Thanks, thanks for your call. Okay. Yeah,
3: a great comments there.
8: Thanks, man. All thanks right. Thanks for in. Take it easy.
2: Bye-bye, Thank you. Thanks. Bye. Thanks. Yeah, I mean. He makes some good points, and they're all pretty obvious, really. I mean, right. a, a currency has no objective value. Right. It's a, it, has sub, it has subjective value. And a currency, ideally, a currency should be, should be, can be anything. It can be a piece of metal, can be a piece of cloth, it can be a twig, it can be a shell, whatever. It's just the means that everybody agrees on to say, if I give you yeah. one of these, this one of these is worth, not in itself, but one of these is worth something else that actually has objective value for me. For example... One, I'll, everybody will agree that one little small piece of gold or any other metal or material, whatever, is equal to one cup, right? So you start you – you have to give each – you see, it,
0: gold has more intrinsic value today than it did before in a certain sense because at least today, gold has a manufacturing use, mm. right? It is good in uh, electronics. Therefore, it does have an intrinsic value in the fact that it makes a better electronic uh, Components. Yeah. Okay. You know, but it's gold and silver. They do. Yeah. So today they have more intrinsic value. In all fairness, a bit of gold has more intrinsic value than a U.S. dollar in the sense of the U.S. dollar. All you can do is wipe your ass with it. That's about all it's good for. Whereas with you know gold, you can manufacture something that yeah. works better with gold than without. But like today. That's today. Back in the old days, yeah, it was a little bit less. It expensive. was a va- it was a vanity kind
2: of thing for jewelry. For I mean, was, what could you to do with facilitate
0: it? Facilitate trade because again, it didn't again. tarnish, it didn't rust, exactly. It lasted. It was easy to mend yeah. and mold.
2: Yeah, exactly. Those are the list. so just practical benefits. They were to practical benefits. But yeah. so what? It, what it comes down to is that any currency, gold, whatever, is simply a means to facilitate barter. Right. Exactly. Instead yeah. of direct barter, to, tward- th- to, to define, you know, uh, so you don't have to.
0: Carry your cow. Well, it's like the guy to, it's to exchange it for. I said work, but manufacturing. It's to, it's an exchange for the skill and service of another person. Like say, mm-hmm. for instance, if you say it's to exchange, I want a hammer, mm-hmm. right? Well, what you're asking for is I want to purchase the skill of the person who knows how to construct hammers, mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. a hammer is not such an easy thing to construct. If it's mm-hmm. nice and it has a claw and everything like that, and it has to be molded in metal and they beat it in, shape the wood and stuff like that. So you are purchasing. The labor, the manufacturing ability, the work mm-hmm. of another person, and that's mm-hmm.
4: what money yeah. is. Yeah, I have a personal story here. I, at the time, I was giving postgraduate um, <clears throat> classes in a uh, business school, and one of the classes was about value, because I was working with venture capitalists, and uh, we have to negotiate the value of companies. You know, you you're an entrepreneur. You started your IT company, and you need funding, and you meet venture capitalists, and uh, you want money and they want some equity from your company. So, what's the value of your company? And there are thousands of books developing theories about how to calculate the value of a company <coughs> ROE, ROI, and per- growth perspective, market share, number of customers, uh, net income, profitability, etc., etc., assets. And in the end of the classes, <coughs> my conclusion work was in the end, the value of your company is how much. A buyer is willing to pay for it, mm-hmm. and uh, <clears throat> it's so subjective. So it's all subjective. Yeah. It's subjective. <clears throat> it's more a co- social or collective or bipartite convention. Mm-hmm. It's an agreement between someone who has something to offer and someone who wants this thing. Mm-hmm. on how much for it
2: so it's, and, and, and that can be there can be corruption behind that there can be lies and deceit behind that I mean for for vested interest for example I mean they talk about the markets today the the economy and different you know uh, stock exchange today being uh, markets being based on sentiment and I mean it's ridiculous people just accept that that the markets you know the sentiment in the market today is that no. so what you have apparently is <clears throat> for example in New York and, the, and Wall Street and the stock exchange you have these uh these bankers who are, you know, um, they're, they're brokers or whatever, but they're, they've got a reputation for being, they're the people to go to. And, and apparently they are the ones and they earn like you know $25 million a year and stuff. But apparently one of those guys can, if the right person says the right thing to him, uh, he can turn around and say, oh, you know what? <clears throat> I don't really like the look of orange juice these days. You know, right now, orange juice isn't looking good. And he 'll spread that word around, and suddenly the price of orange juice will plummet, or people will dump all of their stocks in oranges you know and, and, and the price of it will collapse and he, he that's that sentiment that's just one guy or a small relatively small group of people who have the power to and their companies can be destroyed, and people can lose their jobs and stuff over. Him saying that for a particular reason because somebody gave him a brown envelope or some friend of his wants, you know, for whatever reason, he, Even. Can, he can spread a sentiment that will cause the value of commodities to drop for no reason whatsoever. It's true and it's, it's, it's completely it's false. false. Ironically, that uh,
4: the fundamentals of modern economics are based on theory, perfect markets with rational players. The rational? Yeah, yeah, and we're getting there. So the idea that all players in the market have access to objective information at the same time that the market shares are shared amongst a lot of players and that they take objective, rational decisions. But actually, all those points that make the fundamentals of modern economics are false. The information that are fed to the market are manipulated, are false, Not every player gets the same information at the same time. They're insiders and outsiders. Mm -hmm. And of course, we are not insiders. So you're sure to lose when you're not an insider because you have the the information late and usually you have the corrupted information. And there's not a widespread distribution of market share. You have a few players that are usually in collision, that work together and that hold such a share of the market that they totally control it. Mm So the reality is just geometrically opposite to the fundamentals of modern economic, mm-hmm. i.e. perfect market with rational players.
2: Yeah. So it's all going to go down the toilet pretty soon. That's the way it's looking. The economy is going to crash, be crashed, it's going to implode in and on itself because it all is based on a false premise. Yeah. So people need to... What can people do? Well, people need to, to start thinking in those terms and like our last caller just said, start stocking up on on stuff that you yourself will need if you can and that you might be able to trade because ultimately, if the worst happens, it's going to go back to a bartering type of scenario because it's going to be basic essentials that people want to exchange. And you need to start kind of thinking and making connections with other people and if that's possible.
0: You know. Start developing some skills too. Skills, skills absolutely. Skills are the most important thing because even if you don't have any goods, you can always trade a skill. I mean, you know take a take a class in construction or cabinet making and you know learn something you know good you know learn to do for yourself that's probably the most important thing that anyone can do cause, animal husbandry yeah animal husbandry or something like that you know steed work have yeah you know get control of that stuff because and and lock in value i mean people got to learn to see the intrinsic value of a thing um the first thing that you should think about in terms of value, the most valuable thing is the thing that you can't live without.
5: Mm-hmm.
0: Like, if you don't have, you'll die. Most people don't even know, like, for instance, that you'll die if you don't have salt.
4: Mm-hmm. So
0: it's probably a good idea to have some salt. It's very important. And you know? again,
4: here, players are not rational. Us yeah. a human being are controlled by emotions often yeah,
0: exactly. and
4: beliefs. And um, I remember this report about surviving during the Russian crisis. And one of the products that was the most researched, the most uh, asked for by Citizens was uh, perfume yeah. by women because when you've lost everything yeah. you still want this little island of dignity of femininity mm-hmm. yeah. you know Um during the after the first world war in France when there was scarcity and not a lot of resources during the uh, 1929 crisis something that was really researched by a consumer was this uh, black eyeliner yeah. because women could fake the Long socks, the line at the back of the legs, to as if they were wearing those uh, stockings. So it's not only rational.
2: Yeah, and what really beats me is that when you think, if you just stop and think about any country and all of the people, all the people who are working in that country, they are the people who are producing everything. Mm. They're producing absolutely everything, but today, especially in the West, the vast majority of them, or a large percentage of them, are in debt. You know, collectively, they are all the ones who produce everything that is that exists within the country in terms of things that are needed. Yet a large percentage of them are in debt to
3: a bunch of bankers who produce absolutely nothing. We have a parasitic economy that sits on top of the real economy where you and I live and work. Um, That is... I was going to say out of control. It's not that it's out of control. It's 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 formed this hard crust, but there is historical precedent. It has happened before, and I don't. I think listeners should also be aware that uh, for all the efforts they make to control, manipulate prices, control things, enrich themselves, and of course that does go on. There is no actual. Control. There, there, there are things that are outside of their control, even in the sphere of prices.
2: They control your mind. Economics.
3: Basically, and that's how they control it all by what you believe. And uh, this year is the hundredth anniversary of the Federal Reserve, and a lot of people in the US, you know, who are aware of how things go down. Their their refrain is, "End the Fed, end the Fed." Come up with some alternative solution, and things will be better. It is going to take more than that, of course. It's a systemic problem. It's a systemic problem, and it repeats in history. I've been coming into a fascinating book by an economic historian. It's called The Great Wave, and he charts using umpteen different kinds of data, which is readily available because the main thing he used was prices of food, receipts for purchases, the price of labor going back some 800 years and using all this data, he's found that there were four great waves of what he called price revolutions. These were periods when inflation went up markedly, and he plots it over this time scale. Okay, we're all familiar with inflation going up and down year to year, decade to decade. To some extent, that is manipulated, locally manipulated, let's say. But over the longer time frame, it's it's uh it's outside the scope of any one group of people or individuals to to rig of course yeah. it is so we're talking hundreds of years here and what he found was fascinating because there are price revolutions where inflation the cost the cost of basic food and goods goes up and it goes up and up it, there's an ex- exponential race. and then of course there's a crash the overall bubble let's say pops. And then a systemic crash. And then there's a new equilibrium that's developed after. There have been four great waves in the last 800 years. One he calls the the medieval price revolution. Then there's the renaissance one. Then there's one in the 18th century. And today we're living in the tail end of the 20th century one. And I, I I've I'm only just starting to compare some of the data, but it's amazing how these charts fit with periods of widespread crop failures Mm -hmm. as a result of environmental changes. Mm -hmm. These four spikes, so far as I can see, correlate with environmental um, changes right down to, I mean, uh, there's a guy called Mike Bailey, some of you will, will be familiar with, and he has charted that carbon dioxide, for example, has risen in a fairly recent past. And it's exactly at this time that CO2 levels went up during the medieval period. At the beginning of this price, overall price inflation started to go up. The first thing that uh, went up was food and fuel prices. And everything else then followed from that. Um economic historians do look at the environment as a factor but I, I i wonder to what extent it actually is a major factor in in in, in if you like regulating yeah there might be different topic. kind of
4: uh, of crises, and you can rig market up to a certain point but when there's no more sun no more crops no more wheat, de facto the price of wheat will go through the roof mm-hmm. that's not engineered and you can do nothing against that, get off the wheat people
5: yeah.
4: and um, interestingly, there' are also the human engineered crisis because basically to make money very very basic in speculation, you have to buy a good for a lower price than you sell it, so basically, you have to buy when it goes up, you sell when it's up, or if it's a market going down the opposite. If you know about the bubble, if you create it, but you buy when it's low, you sell when it's high, and hence the fluctuation, which are one of the basics of the wealth accumulation of the elite, so pull the string of the markets. But then you, you start to wonder, if there's a correlation, a kind of as above, same below principle, if there's a correlation between human crisis and cosmic crisis, if the level of suffering or lies believed that human beings can trigger some cosmic reaction. You can wonder if those human engineered crisis, financial crisis, manipulation, that induce a lot of suffering, and which are massive lie, A lot of suffering often we focus on those mass destructors, you know, like Stalin and Hitler. But imagine the one who turned the nubs of inflation rates, how much poverty they create, how much famine, how much death, how many diseases That is a fundamental tool, money, that affects all of us. Nobody is immune. Everybody needs money to live, wage, a house, a shelter. Money is the key. Mm
5: -hmm. If you
4: control money, you control people, you control nations, you control the world. So are those leaders that abuse, manipulate uh, financial markets and put people in poverty, misery, trigger some uh, crisis? they have no control over and have a far greater magnitude. Mm -hmm. Absolutely,
0: Absolutely. that's interesting. In the end, they're worse than Hitler's, you know, in a certain sense. Worse than Stalin's because the death and the destruction and the misery they create is such a larger scale. Yeah, it's so pervasive and
4: insidious. And they present their deeds as beneficial deeds. IMF, Central Bank, was created officially to regulate and stabilize the market. Since the creation of the Federal Reserve, We've gone through the 1929 crash, the 1930s crisis, the two, 19- world wars. two world wars, the 1987 crisis, the Black Tuesday, the 1973 crisis, the 1978 crisis. It's a succession of crises because crisis is a fundamental device, phenomenon, through which
3: main capitalist players. Increase their worth. Mm-hmm. And they, they do this as a force of nature, as Harvey says. said. Yeah.
5: Mm-hmm. They, no, there are in an nature.
3: opportunity in, in crisis. It's like what um, Naomi Klein said in the shock doctrine. When a crisis happens, real or imaginary, people are shocked and traumatized, except for some. And mm-hmm. they immediately see the, see the field as wide open mm-hmm. to take more for themselves and this is this is this was actually it's kind of indirectly mentioned by this historian um he doesn't use the same terms but you can see he's getting there that during good times of stability relative price stability more or less equal distribution of it somebody's able to get a fair wage for his labor basically mm-hmm. but slowly slowly what happens is greed starts to infect slowly and then it forms these ramified networks of let's say mutual pathological interest rather than any plan from the start to screw the people mm-hmm. over but invariably that hardens and it forms a crust and it it does to all intents and purposes look like a directed uh from the top yeah. down it looks like it but it's just
2: uh it natural looks, it looks organic very like yeah infestation or infection of greed, and it's, that's our problem—the major problem in the world today—is the pathological people at the top who got to the top through greed, and who are destroying our society and have done it uh, through greed. Their, their greed is a sickness, you know, and this is what people need to understand. And it's not about overturning the system and you know overthrowing government and all that kind of stuff. It's about seeing the way things are and understanding uh, the state of the planet and the state of society, and stepping outside of it. And the most important way you step outside of it is psychologically. You know, it's, it's, and through the process of seeing it, that's how you step out of it psychologically. And obviously, when you step outside of it psychologically, uh, you start to do little different things here and there in the way that you run your life and organize your life. You, don't, you can still live a normal life to some extent, but you start taking action based on what you see. And that's the I mean, simple, the simple answer to it.
0: The problems of the world are not so great that we can't fix them if we try. They're not so great.
2: No, but everybody has to do their part, yeah. and it, 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 you got to, to stop being mind programmed. Yeah. You know, you stop buying, buying into the bullshit. You know, and believing the bullshit. They're not out to, you know, our glorious leaders are not here to protect us and, and keep us safe. They're here to feed off us.
4: And, and finance is a field where the two main objectives of psychopathic individuals, I agreed and destructions go hand in hand, because it's a zero-sum game. Money, there's a limited amount of money and resources. If you driven by greed, you accumulate wealth, it means others have less resources, Mm -hmm. it means you put others in misery, so you serve your greed objectives and while serving your
2: destruction objectives at the same time. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, yep. So, I think we've covered the topic for this week. We hope everybody enjoyed the show. Uh, Thanks to all our listeners, and thanks to our callers for your comments and questions and calls. Uh, We will be back this time next week. Uh, We're not sure what we'll be talking about, but we're damn sure...
0: We'll be be talking.
2: We'll be talking, and it'll be interesting. Okay. So, until then, overnight. See you next Sunday.
3: Goodbye.